ABC Listen. Podcasts, radio, news, music and more. Hello, Kirsty Melville with you for the History Listen. And today we take you to remote South Australia in our series, The Sands of Uldea. This episode is all about the British nuclear bomb tests conducted during the Cold War at nearby Maralinga. We joined producer Mike Ladd and a group of Maralinga Jaraja people on their way out to Ground Zero. It's just after dawn at Maralinga village and a breakfast of kangaroo tails is cooking in the campfire coals. Today is the start of a big day. The Maralinga Jaratcha people are going to visit their lands at the old nuclear bomb sites, some for the first time. Think about land and what happened to all in the past. And all the people walking around. But say it to us earlier, what happened? Yeah. But very happy to be back out here again, you know. See the country again. Now we're only a couple of coming away from the road side, so we'll pull up there and I'm going to show you the big map there and explain a couple of things there. And then we'll go out to two of the bottom sites. Then. Maralinga is 54 kilometres northwest of Uldea in South Australia's Great Victoria Desert. Between 1956 and 1963, it was the site of seven nuclear bomb explosions, as well as the so-called minor trials, where plutonium would be deliberately set fire to or blown up with TNT, just to see what would happen. Well, guess what? It scattered everywhere, and it was nearly impossible to clean up. Some of those minor test sites, like the one called Cooley, are still off limits today, 60 years later. <laughs> the elders looked at this place as a, as a mammal. Mammal means evil. And what happened here was an evil spirit went off Mama Brother, which they would never come back to this place because of the poison in the area. 
Mama pulled a big evil. Oh, Mama Pulga. Yeah. Are they still worried about coming back here today, or are they starting well, we, to come we back? basically don't have any elders left. All our elders are gone. We don't know if it's due to this place, but a lot of the Arnongos in this area, or elders, some majority of them did have some sort of cancer. And um, was it from here? No one knows. There's no research, no test or anything like that's been done on them. My dad passed away with leukaemia. We don't know if it's from here. Because all the time that he worked around that here. That's Jeremy LaBoyce, chairperson of the Maralinga Jarritja Council. of the British and Australian servicemen exposed to the blasts also died of cancer. Though the McClelland Royal Commission of 1984 was unable to conclude that each and every cancer was specifically caused by the tests. That was the out for the British government when it came to compensation claims. On the way to the bomb sites, we visit Maralinga International Airport, walking across a small bridge to the old terminal. That's what they call this bridge. The bridge of size. I should have explained it, because when the young British troops come from England, they weren't told what they were going to do. They were told they were going to a place called Maralinga in the Australian desert, and we'll tell you what you're going to do when you get there. So when they get here, might be summertime, 50 odd degrees, million flies all over them. And they'd be walking through this way here, and then looking around, and they're thinking, God, what are we doing here? You've got people on this side of them done their tour of duty. But they weren't allowed to talk to these people because there's a line of Commonwealth Police either side because yeah. of the security. You weren't allowed to pass information. And the people on this side are saying, thank God we're going home, you know. Yeah. So they named it the Bridge of Size for the sentiments that were spoken on either side. Yeah. But the thing is, there's a bridge of size in Venice, yep. and it goes from the courthouse to the execution chamber. And you can hear the swamp boats sighing too. Yeah, yeah. That's Robin Matthews, our driver and nuclear test site guide. At its peak, Maralinga was home to 3,000 soldiers and scientists, and 30 planes a day landed at this airport. After more than 60 years, there's still barely a crack in the landing strip. I can tell you how much they spent building Maralinga Village on the hill and the airstrip itself, £6.8 million. And money was no object because they were chasing that atomic dream to get up there with Russia and America. But this airstrip was the largest airstrip in the southern hemisphere at the time and this could land the space shuttle in emergency. It's 2.4k long of bitumen. Underneath this 80 metre by 30 metre section is five metres of solid concrete. You can still land a jumbo here, no worries whatsoever. Um, now, we'll jump on the bus and we'll head out to um, roadside. Yeah. We've got about 20 k to go out there. Wow. Apple. Thank you.
Ancient waterhole tracks went through the Maralinga lands to the permanent soak at Aldea. The test site is one of the main walking tracks for, for the people when they're coming, heading to Aldea, you know, following waterhole to waterhole to waterhole. So that blocked them off from a very this important blocked them route. off, yeah. But to them, they didn't care. They would just walk through it. They didn't know what, what was atomic bomb was. So they just walked through it barefoot. And they carried with them a, a spear and a woomerang and a boomerang. <coughs> and they were happy. Yeah. So. You see that? I'm sorry to interrupt you now, mate. When Clement Attlee asked for the land, Bob Menzies gave it to him in 51, but they signed all the documents in 52. And a query come up from the London Parliament, but um, isn't it Aboriginal Reserve? And it was, it was all the native reserve. And he said, well, that's all right then. Show me the map. So just imagine that's the map of all the native reserve, right? He got the map and he said, right, oh, you want that from there up to there? Okay, then, well, that part there now, that's all the reserve, that's yours there, with a stroke of a pen. Sorry, this is disgusting. Knowing that there were Aboriginal people that were living out here, and they'd know that before they'd even done the test here, that there were people living in this country. And and knowing that it was a gazetted yes. native reserve. Yes. You know? Mm. No and that consultation. Was up, that was up, no consultation with anybody. How could your, well, there you go, your relation, Warren McDougall, right, through, through family. Yep. Um, how could he patrol two and a half thousand kilometres of dirt roads out here? and make sure that there was no people on this land. It's a physical impossibility, you know? And like Jeremy said, they were going from rock hole to rock hole. This was their dreamtime roads through here, man, you know? Yes, for me, this is personal. My great uncle was Walter McDougall, native patrol officer at Woomera. A tall, red-headed Scotsman with a dog, one Land Rover and a stubborn streak his job was to get people out of the way of rockets and bombs in an impossibly large patrol area. His Pichinjara name was Pikamara, meaning sick hand, and they had a hand signal for him, the two middle fingers pulled down to represent the fact he'd lost a couple of fingers in a gun accident. McDougall often clashed with his superiors, and in 1956, he threatened to go to the press over the location of the Giles weather station, which he knew broke agreements with Aboriginal people and would severely disrupt their traditional life. So far as any publicity likely to arise from McDougall's views is concerned, he should be made aware of his duty as a servant of the Commonwealth and informed categorically that public servants are not permitted to make statements to the press. Your memorandum discloses a lamentable lack of balance in Mr. McDougall's outlook, in that he is apparently placing the affairs of a handful of natives above those of the British Commonwealth of Nations. A. Butement, 1956.
The United Aborigines Mission at Aldea had closed in 1952, but not all the desert people knew this. Some were still walking towards Aldea, looking for food and water. McDougall, with his limited resources, couldn't be 100% sure that the Maralinga test area was truly empty of people. But he signed off on it anyway. He shouldn't have. He was just a sop. We've got a patrol officer out there doing everything he can to find the Aboriginal people. They wouldn't say it was 200,000 square kilometres of inaccessible country he was supposed to do it in, but he's doing a good job. Historian Tom Gara. One group that entered the prohibited zone during the nuclear bomb trials was the Milpuddy family. Edie, Janindi and their two children, Henry and Rosie. They were found camping with their dogs near the still radioactive Marku bomb crater. The Milpuddies did come down. I think they arrived at Maralinga a few months after the Marku test in 57. They'd walked down from Ernabello, I think, in the north. Through a translator, Edie Milpuddy gave her testimony to the McClelland Royal Commission. I did not know what was happening then. I did not know that the mission was closed. We were coming this way. At a waterhole called Ununchu, we heard an explosion and the earth seemed to be moving. We saw the soldiers and activity round Emu. The white fellow spoke to Henry. He had been to school in Ernabella and he started to sing Jesus Loves Me, and the soldiers heard that and understood. They told Henry that the mission was closed down. There was no food there, but we still went on. After Emu Junction, we were sitting camped in the bush. We had no water, just guppy from the trees, knocking it out from the root. No pannikin, no clothes. When we lit a fire, the white fellow saw the smoke and came in the morning. We were surprised when we saw the soldiers in Khaki. They put us in a Land Rover and they brought us down this way, near Maralinga. Their dogs were shot because they might have been contaminated. They were, they were all showered back at Maralinga, put in a car for the first time. They'd never been in a car before. They all got sick apparently in, in the back of the cruiser, as one would. Edie Milpuddy was pregnant when she was found near the bomb crater. Her baby was stillborn. Mrs Millpuddy, I think, had several miscarriages and other illnesses. But we had assured the British that there weren't any people in there. But in fact, they never found them. And because you wouldn't. <laughs> if you're Aboriginal, you wouldn't be found unless you wanted to be found. So now we're driving into the radiation area. We're going to roll up directly into the north there. We're going to Tangikite and one tree bombsite. We've got one going out in the north and west there, which is Marku, and the one that goes to the west there is the um, the breakaway Taranaki Road, which we're going to go up there now. But we won't pull up on this. Um, The seven nuclear bomb tests exploded at Maralinga ranged in size from small tests like Marku and Taji up to Taranaki, which was twice the size of the bomb dropped on Hiroshima. Test site breakaway. A British atomic weapon was test exploded here 
on 22nd of October 1956. That's Grand Zero. And they got all of these here at every spot. That's marked on top of the hill. Uh -huh. So wherever you look, you see this, that's where they where that dropped. Yeah. And that's the major one there. Yeah. That's Taranaki. That's the big one. It's not until you stand at ground zero that you fully realise the hideous power of these bombs. Even after more than 60 years, the vegetation is cleared in a perfect circle of one kilometre radius. This vegetation that you're looking at now is 63 years of regrowth, and that's as high as it gets. It gets that height, and it hits the sterile ground underneath, because it was melted many years ago, all the ground turned to glass. So by that uh, melting that ground, it sterilised the ground, and the ground underneath is still sterile. So when the plants get down a certain distance, their roots hit the sterile ground, they die, top of the plant dies. And there's, we've got a couple of little bushes around, but the majority of it, it's just barren ground after 60 odd years, you know. Now um, I'm going to grab my monitor out and we're going to walk over that way over there, yep. one southeast, about 60 metres, and we'll do some testing on the, on the ground over there. Right. The steel and concrete towers used to explode the bombs were instantly vaporised. The red desert sand was melted to green glass that still litters the site. You know why it's green? Because there's a lot of copper in the ground here. And, and when you go to emu, all the glass is black up there because there's iron in the glass, iron sun in the ground. Right. Look at it. All through here now. See it here? Yeah. But... It's like a million that? broken bottles. Now, we're going to do a couple of little tests here. Now, when I click this on, it's going to make a buzzing noise. It's not because radioactive, it's because it's activating itself, that's all. Hold like that, see? 51, 56, 60, 96, 98, 95, it should hit one. Years ago, it would have been dangerous to stand here at breakaway ground zero. But now the radiation is only three times normal. No more than what you get flying in a plane. Millions of glittering jades. The fused red sand turns such a pretty green. Such an evil green. Soon after the end of the war with Japan, I saw what the bombs had done to Hiroshima and Nagasaki, and I shall never forget what I saw. As an Englishman, I kept on wondering if a similar fate would someday fall on London and other British cities. Sadly, but resolutely, I came to the conclusion 
that the risk of this happening would be greatly reduced if the United Kingdom had the ability to return any such blow in equal measure. That the blow would be mortal to both was a terrible possibility. Surely no aggressor would risk a calamity to himself of this magnitude. Mutually assured destruction. Cold War logic. That was Sir William Penny, head of the British nuclear tests in Australia, recorded in 1959. Australia was not the first choice for the British. Originally they'd asked the Americans if they could use their Los Alamos site, but the Americans refused. Historian David Lowe. The Americans actually annoyed the British no end by legislating against the sharing of more atomic secrets in 1946, the so-called McMahon Act. This was very much in response to discovering the leaks that had gone on. You know, some of the early great acts of espionage, of course, relate to the leaking of US atomic secrets, which in turn led to the Russian capacity to build their own bomb. Are we talking about the, the Cambridge spies, the Burgess, Philby, yes. McLean? Uh, yes, and even before then, Guzenko and, and others. Thereafter, the British actually also entertained thoughts of having the Canadians host tests too, but the Canadians seemed a bit more concerned about the potential fallout and the environmental damage and damage to Indigenous populations. Whereas our arch-conservative Prime Minister Robert Menzies said a big yes without even taking it through Cabinet. The conventional wisdom is that he was just toadying up to the British. But there was more to it than that. There is this period between roughly 1948 and roughly Stalin's death in 1953 um, wherein many leaders in the Western world genuinely thought that there was a real risk of an imminent Third World War, which would be nuclear. So with that context in mind, Menzies' decision is a little bit more explicable. And perhaps the other context to remember is that even before he'd come into power, his predecessor, Labor Prime Minister Ben Chifley, had said yes to the testing of guided weapons, uh, missile testing in 1946, long-range weapons testing in the Australian desert, with a view to hopefully harnessing the technological scientific know-how that came with that joint operation with the British. So in other words, there was already a precedent for joining up with the British in new spectacular weapons testing. Was Menzies hoping to make Australia itself a nuclear power? The answer is probably yes, with either the capacity to um, produce their own bombs, or if not that, the capacity to store an atomic bomb that might have been produced chiefly by the British. So that's very much in the minds of um, defence planners. Allied to this is what you might call a period of atomic utopian thinking. Remember that this is also the period when the Australians were uncovering pretty significant discoveries of uranium, and they hoped that this would unleash a vast new kind of capacity for Australian development. They would be able to industrialise in ways that they hadn't imagined. They would be able to transform areas of the desert into green spaces through the power of the atom. All of this, again, by the late 50s was looking very far-fetched. But there is this window of perhaps the first half of the 1950s when these kind of wildly optimistic notions of what atomic energy might do were pretty prevalent. It wasn't just Menzies, it was shared with a number of scientists, it was shared with a number of people in the United States as well. So that kind of atomic dreaming, if you like, was part and parcel of testing of atomic bombs. 
On the Montebello Islands, at Emu Field and at Maralinga, they tested the bombs. At Woomera, they tested the missiles that would carry them. The Blue Streak rocket was developed and test-fired right across the middle of the country, from Woomera in the South Australian desert all the way to the Indian Ocean, just south of Broome. The line of fire from Woomera to Broome is, funny enough, the same distance from London to Moscow. Len Bedell's invaded it. This is the spot that I chose for starting off the project. From here, 2,000 kilometres northwest across to the Indian Ocean, there was nothing in the way. Virgin wilderness country, never been touched. A couple of explorers last century. Only a couple of explorers last century, eh? Let's retrace that line of fire on a different map. The map of Indigenous Australia. Here's Woomera. There's the coast between Port Hedland and Broome. That rocket would fly over Cookida, Yunkanjara, Pichinjara, Pintabi, Matu, and Yulparacha country. Not empty, not vacant. No permission given because none asked. And there was something else for which no permission was ever asked. So we know from 1957, uh, in the horribly named Operation Sunshine, that both Australian and British authorities were engaged in the exhumation of young humans, um, mostly babies, and looking at the, the bones of femurs in particular, to assess the level of strontium that may have entered the bones, because strontium is one of those radioactive materials that attaches to bones, just to see, um, you know, what might have happened during this period. There is documentation of hospitals, without the permission of parents, sending bones from deceased infants for testing, isn't there? Yes, yes, there is. And dental records, too, at certain times suggest a greater degree of um, radioactivity uh, entering the human body. And they relate to certain wind shifts in the testing in the mid-1950s, wind shifts that um, enabled radioactive clouds to blow towards Sydney, for example. Townsville, Brisbane and Adelaide as well. The McClelland Royal Commission showed that the British were often cavalier about the weather conditions and that fallout from some of the tests was carried much further than the 100-mile radius agreed to, though it's hard to prove just how much it affected the general population. See where the plinth is? See the flat area there like that up top of the hill? Yeah. That's where all the cars, the machinery, the bulldozers, everything. That's where they dumped everything. There's um, millions of dollars worth of gear in that big hill up there, in that big pit. This is where all the radiation was. There's underneath that, 26 feet underneath that, is 400,000 cubic metres of plutonium dirt buried in there. There's, God. That's, we've got a, a high-level nuclear waste dump sitting in our backyard. Mm. Right there. That's it, you know. 
But yeah. all the vehicles that worked on the radioactive area had to be left here and they're all buried up on that hill up there. Yeah. And that dirt will be hot for thousands of years. 24 and a half thousand years half-life, mate. Yep. That artificial mesa in the desert is a toxic gift to the future. The Australian dream, or was it a nightmare, of sharing nuclear weapons technology was never realised. All we got out of the deal was a bit of help building the Lucas Heights reactor. The British did two half-baked cleanups of Maralinga in the 1960s. The proper cleanup between 1995 and 2000 cost over $100 million. Who was paying for all this? The Brits? The Brits paying a third, $35 million. Australia paying the $75 million. This is another pro- project we, Australia paid you for. did. Yeah, that's you right, we all did. Tax. We paid for this. We, we all paid for somebody that. else's fucking mistake. Yeah. Now... We'll go up this way here, past yep. the sheds, and then we'll go straight up here to the bunker, um, have a look at the bunker, and then we'll head back to Maralinga. Okay. okay. The Maralinga Jarretshire people received a measly $13 million in compensation for loss of their land. This $30 million wouldn't go anywhere. You know, and I feel for the... servicemen, the people that worked out here. Yeah. You know, I think they poor buggers came out here blindfolded. I don't think they knew what was going on. Nor did my people. You know, it's you know, they say about the cost, how much money they put into place, but they don't give a shit about the cost of damage they did to this place. You know, they basically drove that drove the normal people out for good. You know, there's this one section of the land that they can't practice traditional hunting, camping, cooking, ceremony, they can't do it here. Mm. But then, just as we're leaving the blast zone, we have some visitors. Yeah. Who there? Three. 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 Where about? Come back up. Oh, on the big tree there. Under that little tree yeah. there. Ah, yeah. oh. uh, look there. Another one over the side. Oh, yeah. And you know what? It's made for the first five, six years living out here, permanent. I would have only seen four kangaroo in the whole area. Wow. Four in that five or six years. Now we're seeing. 10, 15, maybe 20 sometimes on a day. Yeah. It shows that the wildlife um, are starting to come back in. Mother Nature's saying it's nearly, it's nearly right for you to come home now. Hopefully, hopefully. Everything will come back. That was part three of The Sands of Aldea. Our readers were Mark Saturno and Lizzie Falkland. Music was by Jakob Gaudashinsky. The sound engineer was Tom Henry. And production was by me, Mike Ladd. I hope you can join me for the final episode, Return to Aldea. Or download the whole series now from the History Listen website or via the ABC Listen app. Bye for now.
You've been listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.